Welcome to the fifth episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers, or boots on the ground, being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems, and cyber weapons. Having discussed previously about private military companies, today we shift focus to the other important element contributing to the decrease in boots on the ground, namely the uptake in unmanned combat aerial vehicles, loitering munition and ISTAR, intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition and reconnaissance, all commonly referred as drones. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I will be the co-host for the series along with my colleague Amin Lutri. Thank you, Alex. We're very excited to have with us today, actually not one, but two distinguished guests, Dr. Anissa Basri Tabrisi and Dr. Francesco Milan. Dr. Tabrisi and Dr. Milan are co-authors of what, in my opinion, is a foundational study on drone proliferation and usage in the Middle East. It's titled Armed, Unmanned, and in High Demand, the drivers behind combat drones proliferation in the Middle East. Uh, and Dr. Tabrezi has since developed the argument further in a co-authored publication for RUSI titled Armed Drones in the Middle East, Proliferation and Norms in the Region. In lieu of introduction, Dr. Tabrezi is a senior research fellow at the International Security Studies Department of Royal United Service Institute, or RUSI. And Dr. Francesco Milan is a lecturer at the Defense Studies Department's King's College London, based at the Joint Services Command and Staff College, UK Defence Academy. And if I am right, he is also an Associate Fellow in Conflict, Security and Development at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thank you both of us for being with us today. Again, thank you for being with us today. As I mentioned in the introduction, until now, most of our guests have talked about private military. And I was surprised to see the resonance in the perceived advantage of using private military corporation and drones. Firstly, both reduce the political blowback from possible losses, let's say as a citizen soldier life, for example. Do you think then for a country, let's say like UAE, wary of losing its citizen, would see a foreign pilot and the drone as a competing choice. Uh, more specifically, having more of one could mean they reduce uh, their dependence on the other? Uh, so thanks for the question. It's really interesting, uh, especially with a case study like the UAE. Um, I think um, pretty much like with every other country, the first sort of the first line of inquiry is the good old blood and treasure question. So is the intervention worth um, perhaps sacrificing officers and soldier men um, on the front line and is, is the cost worth it? So um, one, of the things, one of the things we picked up in our research is that obviously uh, the availability of drones, but as you stress also PNCs, uh, actually mitigate uh, those risks uh, in, in, in a couple of ways obviously. Uh, I think uh, in line uh, with your question, the, um, the case of the UAE is really interesting because 
Of course, you have a very limited pool of, of aircrafts, combat aircrafts available. You have a very limited pool of pilots. Um, so each one and uh, each one of those uh, really counts in the in the tally of, of what the UAE has available. So of course, relying on drones um, in a way mitigates the risks of, of operating in the air and potentially losing pilots and, and airframes. Um, there's also a, a cost element we need to keep in mind. So obviously uh, developing and maintaining a an armed drones fleet is uh, way less expensive than uh, having uh, a full manned fleet. So traditional jet fighters with pilots and navigators in it. Um, in line with this, also the cost of losing one of those is way lower than it would be um, if, if a country or if the UAE was to lose a, a jet fighter specifically. Uh, so in that sense, obviously, uh, pretty much like uh, PMCs do, drones actually uh, provide an advantage in terms of uh, mitigating risk and mitigating costs. Um, I think there's, uh, there's a slight difference uh, in, in the, in, let's say, the decision-making approach towards using PMCs and drones. Um, what I mean is um, there's, um, let's say, a, a, a political difference, let's put it this way, between um, the risks and the challenges of using drones and the risks and challenges of using um, PMCs. Uh, if we take again the UAE as an example, um, the, um, the operations in, in Aden a few years ago were carried out through land forces and special forces um, from the Emirates rather than with uh, uh, PMCs. Uh, so, you know, in, in a way, I can still see scenarios and situations where it's much um, more reliable to rely uh, on uh, on uh, um, traditional armed forces rather than PMCs, um, and uh, uh, it's 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 a bit of the same logic applied to drones. So, um, uh, thinking about what drones can achieve and trying to delegate that role to uh, a, a third party actor means actually to a certain extent. Uh, giving up some of the reliability and the and the availability of these platforms. So having drones available in-house, ready to use, means they can be deployed much faster and, and the use is not caveated by all the contractual and, and, and the limitations that working with uh, PMCs entails. Thank you. Thank you for the response. If I could just follow up with this, uh, you mentioned that drones, perhaps having drones in-house gives you greater control, uh, but it would, I would say, also make you more responsible for taking ownership of, uh, of, of what those drones in your own position do. And there's one thing in your article that I have one example that I found particularly interesting was this case of uh, Israel... Uh, scraping off the manufacturer's label off of its drone to make it harder to track down who, where the drones came from. Is it us or there is a connection issue? I think uh, there is a connection issue with uh, okay. with Amim. Uh, Eugene, I think we have to, to go back uh, to the end of my question. So do you uh, and then 
Sí. No problem. Sí. Uh, okay, apologies, guys. And, uh, no worries. Thank uh, no problem. Uh, 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 <laughs> this. Okay. Uh, thank you for the response. I have a follow up question on that. You mentioned that having drones in house gives a state greater control over their uh, over their means of violence. Let's say, right? But it also comes with great responsibility you also have to then own up to what those uh, or what those drones you have in-house actually do uh, but i was very interested in this example that you have in your paper about israeli drones on which the manufacturer's label has been scratched off that makes it harder to identify the place of manufacturer do you see this as uh, a trend that will continue, that people, that states will continue to use drones as a plausible means of deniability? So it's not a really interesting question because one of the things we, we picked up uh, in the article is that, yes, absolutely, there's, there is a trend in uh, you know, exploiting drones for a degree of plausible deniability. Uh, but in a way that only applies to um, scenarios and countries where you might obviously be concerned about a backlash from the international community and where attribution would obviously be a problem. Uh, we've also seen cases where, uh, in fact, uh, attribution is, is part and parcel of, of the advantage of, of using drones. So one of the key examples being Turkey. Uh, so Turkey has, uh, has been uh, uh, very proactive in, uh, uh, in showing and, and portraying its role uh, internationally, uh, especially through the use of its, uh, of its Bayraktar, which is one of its um, sort of crown jewel in the, in, the, in the range of drones it has available. Um, so there's definitely, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, various options when it comes to um, plausible deniability and whether a country wants to uh, obtain attribution through its actions or not. So uh, as far as those countries that um, do not want attribution um, are concerned, uh, obviously this is uh, a platform that gives you um, a whole range of options if you, if you don't want uh, to be pointed at as the uh, actor who's responsible for that action. Of course, even, even if somebody shoots down a drone, they won't find a pilot in it, obviously. So there's, uh, there's really, uh, unless, as you said, unless you have markings or, um, or you can ID the, the specific drone, the manufacturer and, and, the, and the owner of the, of the drone, uh, then it's, uh, it's really hard to pinpoint who's behind uh, that action most of the times. Uh, so I can see this being uh, a, a, a growing trend um, in, in the use of drones and in the way those actors who are seeking plausible deniability operate, absolutely. Um, moving on with what just you mentioned now, we can see that this uh, not only plausible deniability, but uh, there are a series of legal imperative that the drone are forcing us to reflect upon, like drone as a casus belli, or even uh, in the future, not so far, we are going to see private military company offering uh, pay-per-use uh, combat drones. As we see, drone and private military company can also be imagined as a more cost-effective alternative to conventional warfare. 
Uh, just to put number on this claim, can you tell us about the relative difference in cost of an armored drone and a combat aircraft? Absolutely. I'll just need to find my note because my laptop decided to restart mid-question. And uh, <laughs> so if you give me a second, I'll just get the notes back and we'll do this tiny bit again. Here we go. Okay, ready now. Sorry about that. Uh, I just go straight away and we keep the question. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so um, throughout our research, we, we tried to triangulate some of the information we could find uh, online, which are open source, because obviously not all of this is publicly available and some contracts uh, are, let's say, more secret than others. So by the information we actually managed to find through uh, interviews and, and secondary sources, we tried to combine these with uh, the um, with the cost of other platforms to get a sense of, of what the cost difference in, uh, in training, in maintenance, and in operating these platforms might be. And some of the examples we found uh, is that um, the UAE, for example, had a contract for a number of F-16 jet fighters, and each one of them costs uh, around $200 uh, million. So each platform is roughly $200 million. Um, we, we then compared this with the cost of one uh, Chinese wing long two uh, that the UAE was, uh, has been operating um, uh, in, in various front lines, and each one of those is around $2 million. So, of course, we are talking about a 100-fold difference in, in cost per platform. Uh, obviously, it's, we're not comparing uh, apples to apples. Uh, there's a slight difference in, in technology and in uh, in reliability as well, but uh, it seems because, of course, the growing uh, use of drones seems to push in that direction. It seems that the the, the offset between uh, giving up a, a, a little bit of technological advantage for uh, unmanned capabilities and and uh, a way smaller price tag seems to be worth it. Some of the other examples we managed to find. Um, uh, in our research, again, is uh, the, the cost of attack helicopter, for example, where uh, armed drones are actually a, a viable, uh, viable substitute for that. Um, Saudi attack helicopters cost, uh, within this specific contract, $35 million each. And again, we can, we can compare that to the price of a Chinese drone, but in this case, actually, um, China provided uh, uh, to um, two armed drones for free to replace um, a couple of Saudi drones that crashed uh, uh, back in 2017 and replace them for free. So you can see how the, the, even the market for armed drones uh, makes a difference in, in, uh, in terms of how uh, convenient and, uh, and um, um, inexpensive it is to have access to drones now that China is, is on the market. Since we're already on the issue of cost, one of the things that you mentioned in your article is that one way states have been trying to reduce their costs is to, instead of doing the spending and own money on R&D, uh, you, you shortcut through reverse engineering. And you mentioned that Turkey and Iran, to some extent, have already uh, been reverse, or the sort of evidence suggests that that they have already been reverse engineering Israeli drones. Do you see this as a growing trend as well? Are, there going, are we going to see more even non-state groups 
reverse engineering drones that they caught and using them uh, for, for, you know, like various militias and so on. And is there also a related, I mean, it's a related question. Uh, are there any above the ground technology transfer agreements in the Middle East uh, within the drone industry? That is to say, can states that want to stay above the board uh, exchange technology with each other without gaining the reprimand of the international community? And uh, have we already started to see some kind of indigenous industry in these places as well, uh, besides Israel, of course? Well, I think uh, it's uh, the, the reverse engineering issue is definitely something to watch when it comes to non-state actors. Uh, but I think it's something tricky to do. Uh, first of all, because you need to get the access to the drone, which is not an immediate thing, especially when we are talking about armed drones. And then when you are talking about states, uh, it's also a very peculiar choice to make. Uh, you're talking about being a cost-effective measure to take, but in fact, it might be more cost-effective, but it takes a long time uh, to go down that road. And it also entails a, some certain level of isolation internationally that you cannot really rely on other suppliers, which might be quicker in delivering uh, the, the weapon that you're looking for, but also in providing you the training and the uh, direct access to the capability to use that uh, technology. So I think it's really a choice that uh, uh, Iran and Turkey have taken because of their international situation. And it's difficult to envisage the same choice uh, for other countries moving forward, but it's definitely something that needs to be watched when it comes to non-state actors, not necessarily for armed drones, but also for uh, loitering munitions and other uh, type of lower level technology. Uh, when it comes to your question about agreements, um, I mean, the main agreement that is known at the moment is the one between Saudi Arabia and China. Um, Saudi Arabia basically uh, signed an agreement to plan to manufacture its own armed drones, getting a license from a Chinese state-owned uh, company. Uh, and the idea is to develop its own wing lungs. Um, I think the problem there is how much that is actually something that is going to happen or something that was very much in line with the Vision 2030 and the idea of promoting job employment and the idea to have that kind of prestige technology not supplied necessarily by another country such as China. But I think from the agreement to actually seeing that transfer of technology and know-how, uh, it's going to take a while, uh, to say the least. Um, but I think the other point to be made is that even in the case of Iran and Turkey, which reverse engineered at least one of the types of drones that they had access, uh, in the case of Iran uh, from Israel, in the case of Turkey, sorry, in the case of Iran, actually in both cases, it was from Israel, but also from the United States in the case of Iran. I think the, the, their core program is really native. Uh, we know that they have a range of drones. There is not only the one that was reverse engineered. And then they are truly self-sufficient when it comes to uh, the uh, spare changes, uh, the spare parts, and also the training and the deployment of this technology. So I, I would say that these are native technology to the same extent of uh, Israel. 
and uh, they are uh, different from other countries as, such as the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia in particular that not only rely on the supply of this technology but also on the training on uh, the technology and the spare parts or whatever these are uh, needed. Anisa, on a connected note, uh, most of the drone purchases in Dillon are just a one-time transfer or do you think uh, that uh, a trend will be related to the fact that will they come with contract for repair, maintenance uh, and, and training? Uh, I'm just focusing on, on this specific aspect of the contract because uh, particularly in the Gulf, uh, one of the reasons that American private arm manufacturers have dominated the market is because they also offer presence of retired or a time even serving American soldier acting uh, not only as a trainers but also as an engineer. The presence uh, of American citizens in turns uh, offer safety net of American military in case of an outbreak of war. Uh, in your publication, you briefly mentioned the presence of Chinese expert in Iraq, uh, not only as a trainer, but also as operator. Uh, is still the true? And uh, do Chinese drones still come with a kind of uh, long-term technical support? It's a very good question, and it's a very tricky one. There is very little information on this, and I think uh, the reason is that it's a very sensitive issue, because one thing is selling drones, and one thing is maintaining that kind of long-term relationship between two countries, which entails a shift from uh, a country's perspective in terms of alliances, positioning, and all of that. So it's very, very tricky to find information on that. However, I think it's very difficult to envisage any kind of uh, procurement of drones without the follow-up training, assistant maintenance, and uh, also presence on the ground to uh, provide uh, the deliverables uh, following uh, the, uh, the supply of the weapons. Um, I think it's very, very uh, tricky to see that not happening. And I think that's why there is very little information. I mean, the Emirates is the main example since they have the most uh, drones, Chinese drones. Uh, we know that they are very sensitive about their relationship with China. They don't talk about uh, what type of uh, relationship there is, even if it's very clear that there has been a procurement of drones and that entails also a longer term uh, uh, relationship when it comes to the, to the maintenance of these drones. But I think because of the capability of most of these countries uh, to deploy uh, drones, uh, both in-country but also outside, uh, they really would rely, would need to rely on other countries to do, to do that. So I think it's fair to, uh, to guess that that kind of relationship is taking place. One of the, the main points in your article that you make is about China breaking the duopoly of U.S. and Israel on the drone market in the Middle East. Uh, but you had one caveat in that essay, and then you said that you're writing this article at a time when President Trump looks to uh, change the restrictions on U.S. exports of drone technology. Did that ever happen? And how has the market changed since you published that article? So the Trump administration has actually relaxed uh, the legislation when it comes to the export of armed drones from the United States. That happened in 2018, but so far that has not translated into 
uh, sales uh, from the American side, new sales, I would say, uh, to countries in the Middle East in particular, but also broadly speaking, uh, beyond the usual uh, partners. I think the reason is uh, twofold. One, it takes a long time to negotiate these deals. Uh, these are cost effective compared to conventional and other conventional um, technology, but uh, they are still uh, very costly, especially the American drones. And two, uh, I mean, uh, as I said, they are more expensive than uh, drones provided by other countries such as China. Uh, and uh, this means that there is still, um, I, I would uh, suspect that some negotiation going on behind the scene uh, for uh, taking over a market that has been over the past few years dominated by China uh, in the Middle East. I think, however, it's fair again to, to guess that the trend from the Trump administration, especially if we are going to see a second administration, is going to be uh, into trying to fill the gap uh, of this technology in the Middle East because this fits very much into the US-China competition and uh, uh, one of these elements would definitely be the, uh, the provision of uh, drones because they feel it's not only something that they are threatened by uh, commercially, but also in terms of military relationship with the countries in the region, especially those with which they have been allied. Another question that always uh, come up to mind uh, when uh, it's talking about uh, drone efficiency is the fact that efficiency in hybrid conflict with non-clear territorial frontline and enemies operating in densely populated area. How does collateral damage or loss of innocent life compare to a conventional on-ground operation in respect with drones? Yeah, so that's, that's one of the problematic areas with uh, armed drones proliferation, uh, as much as it is with, uh, with other types of, of kinetics so combat platforms. Um, you know, as, as, as you pointed out, as the conflict moves uh, closer and closer to civilians, it becomes also um, uh, much riskier, uh, both for civilians themselves, but also for those who are calling the shots and, and actually conducting operations and launching, launching campaigns. Um, the, uh, in a way, the, the, the access to armed drones is a double-edged sword. So it, it, it provides a degree of, uh, of safety for those who operate it. But also we've seen examples um, of uh, basically uh, turning uh, airstrikes into a free-for-all uh, because, again, from uh, the decision-maker's perspective, it can be really sort of low-cost, low-risk, high-reward to do that. So they do, um, armed drones do uh, inject an element of uh, potential increased risk for civilians, absolutely. Um, I would say this is, um, you know, this is part of uh, broader trends in the way conflict is, is evolving today. And I would say the duty of care uh, and the sort of the, uh, the degree, the extent to which the country who operates the drones wants to abide to the national humanitarian law and, uh, and rules of engagement more specifically really makes a difference in this case. So. Uh, I wouldn't say the um, the armed drones armed drones in themselves create this problem. It's it's more uh, it's more a problem of the extent to which uh, this platform enables countries to actually um, operate in areas where they wouldn't be able to operate normally, and the extent to which they want to uh, play by the rules.
since you've already brought up this issue of that it, it ex- drones to some extent expand the possibilities of of where countries can operate um i'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that if the if drone technology has fundamentally changed the uh, likelihood of war itself or the the country's prolict uh, pro, um uh, the the limits and possibilities a country imagines of its military operation has that expanded our country's more likely to go to war with drones um i asked because this i mean there's a, there's one side of that and then the other side is there's what we saw in the saudi arabia's response or reluctance to respond to the attack on the aramco field where uh, because of the anonymity provided by drones it's harder to find a reason to have a counter attack um so so i'm wondering how would you balance that is it going to lead towards more countries being more reluctant and there being sort of uh, low scale dispersed warfare or is there more likelihood of more aggressive warfare as a result of the drone i think a little bit of both personally i think the countries that have been using drones have been using them in conflict in which they probably would have intervened anyways because they they are part of their security priorities uh in uh, in uh, specific countries but also in specific conflicts um i'm thinking mainly about iran turkey and the emirates and their uh use of uh, drones in a specific uh conflict that we are familiar with i think if i have to think would they have intervened without drones probably yes uh but they would have had less tools available to to be where they are today in all of these countries so in terms of propensity of intervention i think it it changes slightly but it it's not uh, dramatically different but in terms of triggering a conflict uh, between two states i think that is very much in line with what you say in in terms of reduction of uh, uh, i think the threshold the threshold for uh, conflict uh, because of the usage of drones uh, is lower uh and you point out to the example of Saudi Arabia but i think that example is actually a little bit more complicated because uh yes it's true that part of the reason might have been the fact that uh, in the end despite all the evidence uh, allegedly provided by Saudi Arabia and the United States uh it is not clear where the drones was flown by uh where the attack uh, took place from and uh, that makes it more difficult even if you point in the iran direction to actually ascertain uh, what you're trying to imply and uh, even more to try to retaliate to, to that type of attack but i think part of the reason why that retaliation did not happen is that saudi arabia very much relied on the united states to respond to that attack so it's it's a little bit more complex uh, than that but i think if you think about the examples of the confrontation and tensions between uh, Iran and Israel for instance on on the border between Syria and uh, Israel i think it's very much in line with uh, the reduction of uh, the threshold of conflict uh, israel had been pointed in the iran direction it was clear that uh, the uh, airspace was violated by a drones by iran but that did not in itself uh, trigger a war between the two countries tension remain and they use the drones in terms of uh, that kind of tension uh but i think uh, uh, for countries that want to avoid an all out confrontation such as iran uh drones provide the perfect opportunity to do so now anisa and francesco please allow me uh, to shift our focus from the middle east uh, to east asia 
Here in Singapore, there is an increasing concern about the deployment of re-engineered civilian drones, let's say for criminal use or for terrorist attack even. ISIS uh, used a Chinese commercial drone uh, and that made the news just a few years ago. And here in Singapore, a couple of weeks ago, we had a couple of Singapore citizens that had to defend themselves in court for operating commercial drone over Singapore military facilities. And we even had a case of a drone used as a drug mule from Malaysia to Singapore. And it has been seized by the Singaporean police. In your opinion, how easy or difficult is it for non-state group to recontrol a captured drone or even to retrofit a non-armed drone to carry a dangerous payload? Yeah, it's another really, really interesting question. Um, so first of all, uh, as far as sort of the, the sort of the more criminal angle into drones goes and, and um, non-kinetic aspects of it, as you can see, it's really easy to find something commercially available and use it for logistical purposes to move uh, drugs or whatever um, organizations are trying to move from A to B. Um, when it comes to armed drones, things become slightly more complicated, but not entirely impossible to, uh, to achieve uh, unilaterally. So um, in terms of, uh, in a way, retrofitting a potentially captured drone and so on and so forth, that scenario, I think, is, is fairly difficult and complex to, to achieve. So let's say a, a non-state uh, actor gets uh, their hands on, on a drone that's, uh, that crashed or, um, or was shot down. Um, using that as, as, as a blueprint uh, to develop your own drone or to get control of that drone itself will be uh, really difficult because of the technology within it, because of um, encryption in various components within it. Um, it's much more likely that perhaps some smaller components might be um, taken and used on a, on a new platform, but actually taking control of that one specifically um, is, uh, is, is quite uh, a difficult task. Now, that said, um, Violent non-state actors having access to makeshift combat drones is a totally different story because we've seen over the past 10 years, roughly, um, the extent to which uh, groups such as uh, ISIS, but other, other groups around the Middle East, but around the world, have been able to develop their own um, uh, armed drones. Um, I, I think this is, you know, in a way, it's similar to the evolution in IEDs we've seen since um, since 2001, with Afghanistan first and then Iraq. Um, so we can see how the the learning curve is uh, is is a bit steep, but also as as groups uh, try and test new ways and uh, and and means to use uh, in in the realm of drones they come up with better and better and more technologically advanced ideas as we progress. Um, so if we take, for example, the, the conflict in Syria, we've seen plenty of, uh, in a way, uh, makeshift armed drones where, you know, from the most simple ones, uh, where you get a, a readily commercially available, uh, let's say, toy drone. They're not toys, but essentially the thing you would find online, you click and buy and gets delivered to your house for $50. Uh, 
um, equipped with a hand grenade and a switch activated remotely. So you could fly this thing with a hand grenade attached over whatever target you have in mind and drop a grenade on it, which is one, I think, one of the most um, simple ways to adapt um, a weapon you have available to a, an existing drone technology and make a makeshift combat drone. So from, from that level of simplicity all the way up to some of the drones we've seen, uh, ISIS operating with its own um, uh, navigation systems and payloads and so on and so forth. So there's definitely, uh, I think, a, in a way, a market to see uh, an evolution in the way uh, violent non-state actors operate drones and actually how they develop drones is even more interesting. Thank you. Uh, at the end, I want to ask a question that we have been putting in front of all of the guests that we've had so far. And it sort of asks you to take the big picture and, uh, and, and, and answer it. What, in, what do you think will be the future of warfare and security management in a complex environment in, let's say, 30 years down the line? When I think about it, I think complexity. Uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, I think about it in more specifically in terms of the number of actors that uh, might be present in the same conflict, both state and non-state actors with more complex dividing lines, uh, uh, more reliability on a proxy elements, and uh, therefore a more, a, a more challenging uh, aspect in terms of uh, defining alliances and, and uh, dividing uh, aspects within a conflict. So yeah, I think it's going to be trickier and trickier to see who is operating where from which side or through state or non-state actors, um, a little bit of both, and what does that mean for, in particular, the resolution of this conflict? Yeah, for me, pretty much in line with what Anise said, um, of course, complexity is, uh, is, in a way, the name of the game. I think one important thing um, looking forward is to understand that probably we won't have one type of conflict. So we've been coming out from uh, a so-called counterinsurgency era, thinking that counterinsurgency would have been uh, what um, uh, you know state actors would have been doing for the foreseeable future. Um, that's not wrong, but the the reality on the ground seems to be that we will be doing a range of things um, at the same time. So it's hard to pinpoint one type of conflict that will be you know present for the next 20 years while other types, of, other types of conflict will be absent. So I think that the real complexity uh, is uh, that uh, any given state actor who's trying to navigate uh, security nowadays needs to keep into account that they will be doing a whole range of tasks at the same time in different places in the world, sometimes unilaterally, sometimes in coalitions, sometimes this will be uh, conventional, uh, perhaps state versus state. Sometimes it will be hybrid or counterinsurgency. And all of this is going to happen at the same time. So the, the range of capabilities um, countries need to develop uh, is, is way uh, larger and way the, the spectrum of options is way broader than, than it used to be. Anissa and Francesco, thank you so much for being with us today. I know personally, I have learned a lot about a theme that I 
always thought very differently about I've always thought about the Middle East as the victim of drone attacks but here you've presented also sort of the the manufacturing industry and the and the intricacies of the market uh, of 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 drone sales uh in the end i also want to thank the broader team without whom this podcast series boots off the ground would not have been possible namely i want to thank eugene lim lim wei chen from the events and communication teams here at the middle east institute and of course the middle east institute's associate director carl scadian also special thanks to all our listeners Please follow us on the various social media platforms and send us your comments and feedback. We would love to hear from you. In closing, I want to pu- plug in our next podcast with the Chinese leading private security companies that provides anti-piracy service. That's all for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you.